Breathing in diesel exhaust fumes is like walking into a fire without a mask. Over time, those toxins lead to cancer. Protect yourself with MagnaGrip, the easiest, most reliable exhaust removal system that features a true 100% seal to eliminate diesel exhaust fumes. To get free grant assistance, visit MagnaGrip.com. Well, good evening and welcome to another edition of Fire and Training. I'm your host, Douglas Klein, and we are on part five of the six-part series. Joining me is my esteemed friend and colleague, uh, Christopher Nam. Uh, we are back-to-back again. Part five, we're going to talk about uh, some tactical approaches and tactical considerations on commercial fire grounds. And again, uh, fire and training is dedicated to the men and women who are out in the streets. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 366 days of the year this year, uh, making a difference, responding to calls and taking care of business. And again, our focus is to get the information and training out so everyone goes home. So, Chris, it's great to be in show number five of a six-part series. And finally, down to the tactical part, which I really like. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been very interesting. I think uh, when we thought about uh, you know planning this particular production series to expand on what we originally talked about a couple of years ago. So uh, if you remember correctly, about uh, two two and a half years ago, we had a two part series both on your program and on buildings on fire, just talking a little bit about uh, the commercial fire ground and, and some of the challenges and uh, very limiting to say the least when we talk about such a extensive topical area. But uh, when we envisioned the start of this particular series, it was a little bit smaller in scope, but that footprint uh, expanded quite uh, quickly once we got some feedback. So for our listeners, if you recall, we originally talked about this being a a four-part series that got into a couple of different uh, operational areas. And then uh, actually almost as quickly as we got the the first two programs uh, out and and uh, published, uh, we recognized that there was a lot more to talk about. Thus, we uh, expanded the program. So our entire series on the commercial fire ground entails six different episodes, and uh, we'll be finishing that off with uh, both uh, this one here and the lead-in, and then our concluding uh, program on Buildings on Fire, we'll be talking about lessons and learnings from the fire ground. But if you recall, Doug, last uh, our last two episodes uh, that we previously finished off, we talked about risks, and uh, then we then we uh, ended up going and talking about the aspects of command. So, you know, when we talk about construction and these unique particular building types and, and occupancy risks, and then talk about the risks associated with both the small standalone taxpayer or the large uh, mega shopping center, um, there are significant risks to them. And I think the one thing that we recognized in that concluding segment was that you can't take these buildings for granted and you can't relate to these buildings as you typically would in any other type of occupancy or building construction type. In other words, they certainly don't react, nor should we consider them to be anything other than high risk, high hazard, and and not employ residential tactics, which is really part of what we're going to be talking about here. Well, I I would agree, Chris. And, you know, part of the risk goes into the thought process of what command is doing when they're going through setting up an incident action plan. They're looking at strategies. They're looking at the tactical deployments and then getting the companies uh, engaged. And 
the company's taking care of business on a tactical level, all that is very much integrated. And the complexities of these buildings that we're talking about in the commercial world uh, is, is very, very unique. And I had a lot of conversation over this past weekend uh, when I was in West Virginia at the Escape Conference. Part of what we were talking about uh, in there was being able to identify how ventilation impacts uh, fire, fire control, tactical operations, looking at extreme fire behavior, tying that back to the building itself and the performance and how the building is going to react under those type of conditions and then deployment of tactical uh, procedures that are going to make a difference and and taking into the account the risk, you know, making good decisions that are based upon what we are predicting, what we know is performance driven and, you know, being safe about the whole process. And, and that's very, very important. Well, I think, you know, when you talk about some of the operational perspectives, uh, I think first and foremost, especially with commercial structures and commercial occupancies, um, much of that has to do with the size of the footprint. You know, we, we begin with the the square footage, the footprint of that particular standalone or multiple structures if they're in series as part of a strip, but it's going to be that footprint of the building's perimeter and those conditions that sets many things into motions. I think that out of all of the types of buildings and occupancies that are out there that we respond to, the commercial occupancy has everything to do with first and foremost, the footprint and the siting, then you add into the volume of that structure because typically our commercial buildings have a significantly higher degree of volume based upon their usage. Um, and that those two aspects uh, coupled with the construction will uh, certainly influence everything that starts playing out from a, from a tactical standpoint because that includes what? Just in terms of accessing perimeter areas of the building, however large or small, uh, and then also the tactical mobility when you talk about entering into that building and trying to move through that structure. So the square footage is, is very, very important to consider, as is the volume, and that volume has everything to do, as you just talked about, the uh, generation of, of both the products of combustion. It's actually the fire dynamics. The fire dynamics in that compartment, because of its large uh, applications, will not react as it would in a compartmentized type structure that sets into motion a whole cascading series of, uh, of operational concerns and considerations. Well, you know, part of, part of what we need to really be thinking about is um, when we're pulling up and we're getting a size up, and let's, let's start there with tactics, the size up. That's so important. And part of the size up is knowing or predicting how long that building has been uh, engaged in the degradation by fire. And we talked about benchmarking a couple of times through this, but this is a good point to really start thinking about how you deploy your tactics is we don't know how long that fire has been burning before it got called in. Uh, once it gets called in, there's a period of time that the dispatchers are going to handle it. You know, that's generally a couple of minutes at tops and then our response time. And then we really control that response time until the time that we deploy hose lines and, and, you know, suppression tactics. So getting a size up, one of the pieces about commercial buildings that are much more difficult than a residential building is being able to see all the sides, being able to get a real 360 
in a timely manner, and sometimes it's not even possible in commercial buildings to get a 360 initially, uh, but we got to do that. And I remember uh, Chief Sheridan talking about some of the tactics that they've used with, with truck companies of either getting through the building to see the Charlie side or to the roof to see the Charlie side or having a company come into the backside. And I think that's important on a size up because we don't want to deploy a bunch of tactics that, that we're setting ourselves up to fail with. We want the totality of the picture so that when we start deploying tactics such as laddering and search and rescue and fire suppression and ventilation, that uh, we're engaging in the right tactic and at the right time and in the right coordination to be able to facilitate a successful operation. Yeah, I think the size up portion is uh, is very, very critical. I mean, it, you have to determine what is the severity, the urgency of the uh, event, um, the magnitude, and, and obviously being able to identify anything that has to do with fire location and conditions. One of the challenges, obviously, that you have is the fires themselves may be deep-seated in areas that might be controlled with some of the fixed sprinkler systems that may be present. Um, the fire conditions may be loaded, uh, located in rooftop units that are not even part of the interior compartment, or very often um, two other factors. You're going to have an exposed fire that's going to be external to the building in a dumpster storage or um, shipping area where the loading docks are located external to the building um, or within the uh, confines of the loading dock and storage areas that, that interface between outside storage, shipping, receiving, and then the buildings proper. So there's a couple of different aspects that come into play, but I, I think you, you hit upon it quite specifically, Doug, when you talk about there has to be a very discerning degree of, uh, of size up, both as we're entering into the building. So first of all, from, from the arrival portion of it, if the arriving companies have the latitude, whether it be the arriving company officer, second due um, uh, fire response, or a arriving chief officer, if there is that opportunity to do the 360 or get to the rear of the building, that's first and foremost. Now, recognizing that some of the commercial buildings that uh, have multiple tenant spaces, so a standalone, even a large square foot standalone, such as a, uh, a Walmart or a uh, uh, department store may allow you to do that 360, but depending upon how many stores are in conjunction with that, you may have a store that's embedded that only allows you to make access on whatever entry side there may be, and the remoteness of the rear of the building may be very limited. It might be just an isolated couple of loading docks that are embedded with other other structures, but uh, the, the recon and the observations that are conducted upon that initial arrival certainly are going to set the stage for many operations. One of the things that we did mention that uh, nearly all of our commercial buildings, again, depending upon square footage and vintage, especially if we start getting up in the threshold, uh, typically are going to be uh, uh, protected by fixed operable sprinkler systems. It's important to identify where that uh, sprinkler system discharge may be. Um, it's always very, very critical if the companies can arrive, especially going to a side or to the, especially in the rear of the building, if there is any type of discharge of water coming out of the building, especially out of the drain lines from the sprinkler system, the discharge, and you see steam, now it's going to be indicative of, of whether it's be summer or winter and so forth, but normally if we do have uh, heated conditions and we do have uh, sprinklers that are operating and then we do have runoff coming through various doorways 
thresholds and so forth, that runoff is going to be uh, uh, tempered. It's going to have an increased temperature because of the uh, applications inside. So if we see that, that's going to be a good uh, indication, at least initially, that you've got active fire, you've got some conversion going on, you've got steam, you've got water being heated up. So we always utilize that as a, a pretty good indicator upon that first do. But it's challenging. It's challenging at best. And uh, I would say, as you just mentioned, you know, if you can't get in conjunction with gaining access to the building for the companies that do have the accessibility and the availability of aerials um, or laddering to get up onto the roof and start, start giving some uh, critical recon to a command regarding the, the layout, location of firewalls, fire separations, uh, rooftop unit locations, because those are going to start playing out as to what you may have down below in terms of layouts and collapse zones and separations and so forth. Well, you're, you're definitely correct there, Chris. And one of the things that uh, comes to mind uh, when we begin deploying tactics and, and looking at that size-up component is the three components that you always hear. There's life safety, there's incident stabilization, and then there's property conservation. And um, those are your incident priorities, and we begin looking at that. So um, in, in the reality of, of some of the stuff that I talked talked about this weekend and, and things that we need to be discussing here on the show, I think, is there is a, I guess, a, a disconnect between the use of Recio VS and Slice RS. Um, one of the things that I, I think about this, and, and one's more strategic versus tactical, and Recio VS is, is more strategic, whereas I look at slicers as being more tactical in that component and its tactical goals. The first one in Slice RS is that size up, and that's, that's really what we want to get. One of the other pieces that really jumps out to me that is – to me, critical for it is making sure that in that size up, we begin to locate where the fire is. And we do that by a couple of ways. We, we read the smoke, we read the building, and we read the, you know, what's going on within that whole aspect of size up that gives us the location of the fire. And a lot of times that's a set of eyes and ears and and connections between multiple companies and, and depending on the size of the structure like you talked about and being able to, to get that. And, you know, identifying the flow path and identifying how you're going to cool the space, how you're going to extinguish the fire. And then, again, let's go over to uh, the strategic side when we say ratio VS, rescue, even though it's at the very top, that's the number one that goes with the priorities of you know an incident but in slice rs it also goes with the priorities and they call those actions of opportunities when we can do rescue and the salvage but rescue really moves forward and that's one of the things that i was i was stressing with folks is being able to predict what's going to happen next in a lot of these cases and using some of the the tactics that you got one of the the programs i did an actual hands-on program uh accompanied with lecture was vent inner isolate search part of what i was really concerned about is is getting them one to understand when and how and what happens when you do a veis the biggest thing is again sizing up what's happening when you begin ventilating a, a compartment of a bigger compartment 
and seeing what's happening. And, and again, that goes back to sizing it up, identifying that flow path, the location of the fire, what's going on, and then being able to see if it's, it's survivable or if it's occupied. And again, that's a whole nother show in itself. And, you know, we, we talk about occupancy profiling, survivability profiling. I mean, there's been numerous articles written by great people in the fire engineering family about those topics. And I think that's something that uh, I'm going to encourage your listeners to, to go back and pull some of those articles off the website and, you know, specifically look at those, brush up on that, because, I mean, that, that's critical, as, as you know, Chris. Well, you know, I think let's go back to some fundamentals. So, you know, arriving at a commercial structure, first and foremost, you've got to be concerned about the the occupancy usage and the occupancy status. So depending upon what that commercial building is uh, providing for, um, is going to set into motion a couple of criticalities regarding uh, operations and the availability and the need for maybe additional resources and whether we engage or uh, limit our degree of engagement on that initial arrival. So you know, the occupancy type, occupancy use, occupancy risk are going to be considerations. Uh, going back to that footprint, you know, the size and the volume of that building also is going to uh, preclude or set up some precursors. Do we need to call for a greater alarm? If I'm arriving with uh, an engine and a, and a ladder truck company, one-on-one -on -one response or our very robust first alarm assignment, that still may not be adequate for the square footages and the potential degree of engagement in terms of the number of of resources and teams to deploy to uh, enter, have tactical mobility, and uh, start engaging in the structure. Um, I think the other critical part of that too, especially with our commercial buildings, especially when you talk about survivability and, and the search and rescue component, um, many times we are expecting and relying on, depending upon the time of day and the occupancy's usage relative to that. So is the building in use? occupied by both uh, workers as well as civilians? And is it during the peak hours or is it during the, the latter part of the evening or is it during the off hours? So occupancy load is also going to be a critical part regarding the occupancy risk. Does the occupancy load entail both a combination of civilians and uh, workers or is it predominantly one or the other? And the seasonal part of that. So, you know, those are going to start creating some considerations for that first due officer uh, as a, in a tactical mode, because are we going to go into a search pattern or are we, let's put it this way, is there going to be a potential need to supplement the self-removal of the individuals that are being able to remove themselves out of the buildings? Because in the event of any type of fire in a commercial building, unlike residentials, individuals are going to try to seek out avenues and travel paths and get to exit routes or just get away from wherever that fire may be located. Um, it may not take them to exit points that lead out of the building. I think time and time again, we've heard, read, or be, have been part of situations where individuals have sought out shelter, areas of refuge and, and safety, awaiting additional support and, you know, removal. So, you know, we can't neglect the search and rescue component but it probably is of a lesser degree depending upon where we're at in that operations, where we're at in the building's usage and operations and, and whether we're going into a mode of the critical mode, and that's to try to locate the fire and start controlling it. But, uh, 
you know, I'll throw this other little thing out when you talk about vent and flow paths, and, and that's the aspect of uh, cold smoke, um, especially within our commercial buildings. Anytime you have large, open, expansive conditions, large volume conditions, the smoke that's generated by a fire that may be far removed from where we may be seeing and coming into contact with that smoke, that smoke is not going to have the buoyancy. It's not going to have many of the other common features that one would find when we are approaching a typical heavily involved compartment condition. So cold smoke is going to be a very, very critical aspect toward thinking how that plays out, understanding what it is, but then also considering that in the uh, sequence of events. So um, it's very, very important to recognize that we've got a lot of things going on that fall outside of the norm, but it's really very, very critical on that in those first couple of stages of initial arrival. So, you know, we've talked about that first due company officer. We've talked about the first due uh, chief officer coming in. Um, I think that as we approach into that building, the other critical component of tactical approaches is, do I enter from the normal access point of the front of that building? That is the normal entry access point, or are there other more optimum entry points, whether it be the rear of the building commonly, um, and even in the rear of the structure, are there going to be advantages depending upon whether I go through overhead doors and create additional vent and flow paths and, and other problems based upon the number of, uh, of overhead doors that are opened, or do, you, do I utilize a typical type of access door for entry and exit initially? Um, as we've seen, anytime we start opening up a lot of overhead doors in, in large open spaces, we can run into very significant challenges and actually create uh, very undesirable conditions inside that uh, make the fire gain in uh, severity and go maybe may actually go well beyond our control and go beyond the control of the uh, fixed uh, uh, protective systems that may be present. And I, I think that's important too, Chris, is getting people to think out of the box, but differently using what I call the window to the wider world view, that totality of the picture of what you're really dealing with. And one of the, the concepts that I used um, just just in presenting a couple of things is we get, I guess, complacent would be the word or, or get attuned to being from, you know, the fire truck to the front door of an occupancy, no matter what the occupancy is, because that's where we pull up. And that's, you know, the typical place that you would go or that you would make entry. And you, you said it well is is it better to be someplace else is it going to be more advantageous is it going to allow us to deploy our tactics especially like hose lines uh to to be able to get the fire quicker so <clears throat> i want to circle back around to something that that's sticking in my mind uh pretty good is you know we come on scene we we get a good size up and let's say that we we really did a good size up and we know a lot about what's going on with the fire we, we've identified the occupancy and, and the profiling of, of, you know, the type of occupancy, you know, it's occupied. One of the things people get hung up on is, is they get into what they call the rescue mode. Uh, one of the things that I want to put as a caveat there is, are you rescuing or are you evacuating? In strip malls, one of the things that, you know, I specifically talk about is you may have a building and in, inside that building, there's, say, 15 different occupancies. 
And let's say in occupancy number seven is where the fire's at that's beginning to affect occupancy six and eight. In other words, the Bravo and the Delta exposures. Well, in that, I'm sure that there's a potential for rescue in the fire portion. And then again, if we're beginning to affect the two side exposures on Bravo and Delta, that could be evacuation or that could be rescue. But typically you go from there, you're evacuating and you don't have to throw as many resources at that. It's much, much faster. But we, we tend to get hung up on we've got to do a primary search. We've got to do a primary search. I don't disagree. We've got to get in to do a primary search, but the evacuation or the elimination of a hazard or risk reduction uh, tactical move is advantageous for us instead of, you know, okay, now, you know, it's, it's taken off and we need to get these people out or out of the way. Now, I do understand and I do recognize the ability to protect in place and things like that in certain structures, particularly in fire protected systems and in healthcare. There, there's a lot of things that do play into that, but I, I think that's one of our pieces is people, people get hung up that we've got to search every building immediately. And sometimes the conditions in tactical deployments, especially on commercial structures, don't allow you to get that primary search done in what I will call a very quick fashion. And I, and I think about this going back to my days of being the fire chief in the city of Eden, is we, we talked about these larger areas that we had. And we had, you know, commercial buildings, we had large churches, we had uh, industrial facilities, we had major size schools. And one of the things people said is, oh, we do a primary search. We do a primary search. Uh, in reality, I don't think they equated what it would take to do a primary search under certain conditions. And you talked about one of probably the more criti critical pieces is that cold smoke. And we, we've run into having a May Day operation, you know, early on in my, my career here in Norway County to where somebody got just got separated in cold smoke. I mean, it wasn't what I would say ungodly, but we also know by listening to people like Jerry Tracy and, and, you know, all these other greats that, that have lived through people being separated in, in these larger structures and end up being a line of duty death because they're, they're lost or disoriented in cold smoke in, in a mass area. So one of the pieces that I had them do is I, I kind of taught them search tactics and especially using the thermal imaging camera. I was amazed that uh, when I asked a question in a class that had about 25 people in it, how many people pulled the thermal imager off on size up and began using it immediately? And I had like two hands go up in the room. And again, that's slightly concerning because we have a piece of equipment that can help you with size up. It can help you with search. But I also go back to the utilization of, of that equipment when I was the fire chief and getting people to search what what they were able to search in, in the school that I used was basically the front corridor entrance and a portion of the cafeteria, which was off of that, which is only about 5% of the entire building before I exhausted basically about eight or 10 people in those search efforts because they were, you know, trying to search and, and rotating and trying to keep up and, 
it's something that, again, comes back to the training aspect. You know, how much do we train on that? What's our opportunities to train? Sometimes you just don't have those opportunities to be able to get out and, and to truly facilitate in those type of buildings. But again, it's it's the stuff we're talking about here, understanding your building, understanding the smoke, understanding the process. And of course, the, the critical component is the crew and knowing what your crew's capabilities are. And that was a big conversation I had over the weekend with some of these folks is how much experience do they have? You know, I think when we talk about uh, tactical approaches, again, we, we, we talked about these fundamentals of the building. You talked about multiple tenant spaces. So, you know, when you have the standalone occupancy, whether it be a standalone building or the tenant space that has some type of, again, square footage and volume, um, the number of adjacent tenant spaces on either side um, or front to rear also. So, but normally we'll have them side by side, something that you'll find in any type of strip mall. Um, the accessibility, whether you have a sidewalk or a corridor on the front of that building, that's that's part of a semi-enclosed or, or open sidewalk type of a, of a, a strip mall. And then commonly what we might be concerning ourselves with in the rear of the building is do I have a common some type of a common corridor that's connecting all of those spaces to the outside or is it directly from outside into the building uh, and into the occupiable spaces. So I, I, hopefully our listeners are, are recognizing that in order to select the appropriate tactic and identify some of the challenges that might be coming from them, from the simplest standalone structures, such as a, let's say a fast food uh, restaurant or a, um, uh, a wireless uh, phone building center that, again, is selling a particular product. You have the standalone structures of, let's say, upwards of up to 15 to 20,000 square feet. Um, some things are pretty straightforward. We're going to have some indicators on arrival, visual, verbal. Um, we're going to have some indication even when we enter into the building, again, based upon that size of something that is going to draw us toward a particular location, fire, smoke, heat, alarms going off, sprinkler system going off. It's as that building size increases, as well as the number of other spaces that are part of that complex, do we start recognizing the need for additional support, resources, the commitment of concurrent activities. I think first and foremost, if we take a step back, the one thing that commercial buildings demand, unlike other structures like residential, first and foremost is identifying the seat and location of that fire and actively engaging in two things, supporting and supplementing the fixed sprinkler system if it's present, and then engaging in manual fire suppression. Those two are critical in a commercial building, unlike in a residential or other types of occupancies where the life safety hazards, compartmentation, sleeping quarters, I mean, it, it sets up an entirely different set of parameters that goes back to, again, am I searching or am I relying on self-rescue, self-evacuation? So. It's not always going to be primary search initially. I'm much more convinced, as many of, of our colleagues are, when we talk about commercial buildings, it's very, very critical to move into that suppression support mode very, very early on and then allow the, the other activities based upon what we are identifying as probable and suspected locations to support the, uh, the search and or rescue. But engaging in a primary search in a department store 
in my opinion, to, again, unless there's some very specific parameters saying that there's a likelihood uh, of individuals being trapped in a certain location, dressing rooms, uh, lunch areas, uh, a particular quadrant of the building due to a fast progressing fire, the life hazard and the commitment of those resources immediately are probably not the best use of those services and uh, and resources unless you have them, unless you can do those things concurrently and have enough uh, bench depth to uh, get into that suppression mode of stretching lines and, and getting into that, because that's really tough. I mean, we're talking about tactical mobility of just getting into that building, getting lines stretched in. That is a very manpower, labor intensive activity that requires a lot of companies to get those in place to initiate the most critical aspect. And that's controlling the severity of the fire, because I think the one thing that affects our commercial buildings very early on, if we have an unchecked fire, is a potential structural compromise and instability. It's not going to take a lot of uh, heat and or flame impingement to start affecting structural uh, components, structural systems that start creating some very uh, uh, undesirable interior conditions, meaning unsafe conditions, compromise collapse, rooftop units, quadrants that start failing, uh, you know, a column beam assemblies and and floor and uh, ceiling joists. There's just so many different aspects here that are not like your typical structure that requires this very concise degree of orchestration. So, um, unless you've, I think the part important part here is that you got to do two things, Doug. I think you got to be a you got to be a student of the construction and the occupancies and the tactics. You've got to understand the book learning, but you also have to have some experience to uh, pull those together and. One doesn't overshadow the other, and, and I can't think of any other time where um, that I've been involved in that the experience portion of it uh, did not have to come through, that that it had that was a critical part to uh, play out into the uh, sequence of the operations. And, you know, you, you just nailed it, Chris. That was one of the things that people began realizing is in in the conversations that were going on and, and you, you know this conference you've been there many times as well uh there's a lot of conversations there's a lot of dialogue that goes on especially after class in the after hours but one of the things that we see is bigger departments that run multiple amounts of calls and and alarms and responses to fire typically understand this much better than uh what departments do that don't run a lot of calls because there's not a correlation between ex the experience component and the tactical usage. And I asked the question, uh, a good example is these commercial structures of, of the needed water flow that you may have to have because of the fuel loading. And I asked the question, how many people have been 100, 150 feet deep into a commercial building on a two and a half inch hose line engaged in offensive fire suppression tactics just because of the what you have to do to overcome the uh, the energy that's in there and the amount of fuel loading that you may be up against and manipulate those hose lines and uh, lo and behold out of th three times I asked that question I had one person that raised their hand and that's a little bit concerning to me and this is something I want to get to the listeners is we know that, you know, the search component has to go in there. We know that the fire suppression component has to go in there. We know that um, uh, for ventilation to be truly effective, it has to be coordinated with 
the fire attack group. It has to be of the appropriate type of ventilation in the appropriate area. We, we know what happens when we ventilate and create flow paths that are not coordinated. It's not controlled. Uh, we know what happens to the fire dynamics. The, the biggest thing is, if you know that, you've probably got some experience and you've seen it and you've probably lived it a little bit. The problem that we're seeing is a lot of departments, and, and this is in a rural settings, that still have all these buildings. They just don't go to that many fires in those buildings. And uh, I use the analogy of Dollar General, and Dollar General is a, a decent size, standalone, big box style store. It's not as big as, say, a Walmart or a Lowe's or a Home Depot or it's your small. It's your typical small box. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a, you know, if you think of a big box as being the uh, you know the big box applications like the WalMarts and Supercenters and so forth, it's either it, we either categorize it as the shoe box or the small box, right? And, and I say the sort of yeah. tongue in cheek because it is that category. It's be, it becomes that smaller little footprint that has a lot of significant dynamics. That does what it lends us to believe that we're going to be able to control it, stretch the line, and do some things, but whether it be small box to big box, there's some very distinctive features there. So, And I used the analogy, um, it, it was back in, I guess it was December, um, happened to be down on the coastline in uh, the Lake Arrowhead box. And I actually was going, you know, down to the beach house to, to, to spend the night. We were staying down there. And companies were on an investigation and an alarm and it just happened to be on the road that i had to go down lake airhead road and i pulled in there just to stop to say hey to the the folks that were there and the, the captain off the rescue came up to me and was like uh chief you probably need to come in here and take a look at this and i'm like hmm what am i looking at so when i walked in we stopped at the front door and this was a good analogy of really knowing your buildings this goes back to getting out into your districts and, and getting into these buildings and truly doing pre-incident surveys and pre-plans is he said, look at the store. I said, okay, I don't see any damage. He said, no, he said, we've, a, you know, we've ventilated the smoke, very small issue that was going on. He said, doesn't look too big. Does it? I said, no, I said, it's got a little bit of a storage place behind it. He said, Come on with me. And when, when, when he did one of these numbers, come on with me, I like, this is going to be interesting. He knows something I don't. So we walk through the door that goes back to what is considered the storeroom area. And it was about double the size of the store. And that particular store was the storage unit of a franchise that uh, in the back was loaded to the hilt. And of course, it's one of the beach bargain wear style stores, you know, the beach stores. And in the back was a large amount of boogie boards. Now, those are highly flammable. They were they were stacked, you know, massive amount stacked in multiple areas. Some of them up on a deck system, which goes right up to the to the roof line itself. And he said, if this place would catch on fire, Imagine the amount of fuel load and imagine the amount of fire we're going to have that we're probably not going to overcome. And this was a tactic that he was thinking through. They were they were all thinking through this. Uh, this is like the deployment 
again to the rear, especially if it's in the in the rear or wherever. Even if you're coming through the front, getting to the back of the the storage facility, the storage facility itself, it's it's a deployment of a some sort of a master stream. And of course, we got the Blitz fire guns, 500 GPMs. They were talking that, and that was some of the tactical considerations. And he says, you know, to to get some of this smoke that's going to be out of here, he said, because this is going to generate nothing but thick, black, dense smoke that is going to be blinding and highly flammable. Now, that's the type of level of thinking that you, that you really want to have going on with an officer. But again, I go back to some of the departments, you know, across the United States, even some of our younger officers uh, that are coming up that don't have experience, you know, in, in our departments everywhere. How much of that do they know? How much of that have they seen? And and of course, this was one of those 26 year veterans uh, that just didn't have the 11th year repeated like 16 more times. It's He's been engaged the whole time in his in his career. And, you know, that that was refreshing to me. But when we're talking tactics, that size up, that hand line deployment or that water stream device deployment, coordinating ventilation, and of course adding in the fact of potential rescue, the uh, the fact of evacuation that could be going on there, and then again let's add into the building and the and the dynamics of the building construction. What's that going to do to that building? And you described it very quickly. Is that you know this is a type two construction it's got exposed uh scissor style um trusses that are metal and we know the failure temperatures of that we know the expansion rates of those uh rooftop air conditioning systems all those start playing into play and we've talked about that a couple of times but i think that's important for us to recognize when when we look at it and if we do the wrong ventilation and it's not coordinated you know, we just changed every single dynamic that goes into uh, what we're doing. And again, you know, we're talking big boxes, but um, what about the commercial building that's a big box, but it's stacked with floors, you know, that you could get. And we have those in, in some of the areas, malls specifically, with a, a second story that's got an open area, but you're up on that second level and, and you got stores. That's very, very critical. And that's something that we don't talk nearly enough, but there, there are numerous, numerous jurisdictions throughout the United States that have these common uh, stacked commercial structures, um, exterior access, balcony accesses, and again, rather extensive, uh, we talk about a stacked open type of uh, strip mall, for example. Uh, but again, it's, it creates a series of cascading uh, operational concerns. Do I, do I have a fire in the tenant space on the lower level? How is that going to communicate and cause a secondary fire um, in the occupiable space of a similar commercial building right up above? So, you know, ventilation, fire extension, location of tenant spaces, both adjacent and above, uh, across and so forth. So, Commercial, I think one of the, the unique aspects here when we talk about tactical approaches, and I think hopefully our listeners through all of our previous episodes uh, up till now are gaining this better understanding and appreciation that, number one, there is no single set template, that it, it is all driven by uh, size and complexities of the building, or whether, again, whether we utilize this, this term that we use, the small standalone of anything from 
um, as small as let's say a thousand square foot standalone commercial all the way up to the 20 or 25,000 square foot big box. So there's different categories. There's different uh, parameters of risks associated with those occupancies, the occupancy use, the occupancy type, the occupancy status. As Doug, you mentioned, the fire loading capacities, um, our capabilities, meaning the fire service response on that box. Is it adequate for engagement? Is there a need for supplemental mutual aid or greater alarms? What is going to be the time delay of receiving those of those uh, resources and getting them deployed? And how is that going to affect the fire intensity that's going to grow in a in a marked uh, sequence as we uh, are waiting to to get into an engagement? Hopefully, we have some level of operability of a suppression fixed suppression system. Again, depending upon that size and that threshold, that's going to be aiding in controlling and keeping that fire in check from gaining uh, and growing beyond the uh, operability of that. But un more often than not, we, we see the fire developing and extending, going beyond the operability of that sprinkler system due to seasonal fire loading and so forth. And now we start getting into major structural fires that, again, create a different parameter altogether. It's not tactical engagement. We're strategically looking at uh, defensive modes of operation and trying to protect other tenant spaces and so forth. So the cascading seriousness of these events, you can burn that that single story, standalone down, keeping personnel at, at bay and in a safe condition, or you're going to run into a, a very complex series of operations as you get into the larger and larger format building. So um, I think the one word of caution to all of our listeners out there is uh, I think the small standalones, the small strip malls, strip centers that are open to uh, uh, to the environment, um, the, the three, four, five, maybe up to about six multi-tenant space uh, commercial buildings, uh, whether that are normally accessible from street side, um, are pretty straightforward relative to operation tactics, levels of risk. They follow the normal residential or multiple occupancy template of what we're accustomed to, to dealing with. As you start getting that beyond that threshold, and I think we've talked about it when we were discussing this in the risk session, is I think around that 20 to 25, 25 to 30,000 square foot, is there, there are some serious demarcations that go from that capability factor to high risk. We better have those resources. We better have our, our head in the game. We better have some idea of what we are doing and a respect for what can go wrong because that's the de demarcation where the complexities, larger scale fires, larger uh, requirements for fire flow and everything else that comes along with it, inclusive of possible compromise collapse and so forth are gonna be very, very obvious. And, and unfortunately we've seen these things time and time again. Um, it's just a cautionary mode where we're just not having enough of this conversation nationally. I think our attempts here through our, our podcast and our webcast here on, on fire engineering are in that right direction. There are uh, many of us, uh, inclusive of, of the two of us, along with a, a number of others that are uh, have their podcasts and have their uh, um, involvement there with the uh, publication and so forth with fire engineering that are doing some exceptional things, whether it be, you know, uh, doing some classes and courses out there uh, locally or regionally and some of our national instructors. But we've got to continue this conversation even more so, because uh, I, I think we're going to be potentially in that vulnerability state of history repeating events. We haven't seen anything significant of yet. 
a lot of close calls. Uh, just in this past week, there have been a number of commercial fires that have been reported over the last uh, uh, seven to 10 days that, again, you read about them online and on some of the uh, news feeds and so forth that uh, were pretty substantial. And when you take a look at the conditions that were encountered, no significant injuries, no civilian or firefighter deaths, but uh, some some pretty dicey operations. So that it's, it's twofold. Hopefully it's a testament to training, testament to doing the right things based upon the companies that are engaged, um, or it's just a lot of luck sometimes, and maybe it's a little bit of both at, uh, at different stages. It, it definitely could be. Um, I, while you were sitting here talking, Chris, I just happened to, to be looking, you know, at the screen. And one of the things that came to my mind is, you know, we, we've talked about stores and we've talked about some of the strip malls. One of the biggest pieces that uh, just kind of jumped out at me is I was looking at the ceiling above me. Uh, in the background there, and it's a drop ceiling, and all the things that are above the drop ceiling. Uh, they were doing some renovations inside of our office here over the last couple of weeks, and seeing the ductwork systems, seeing the uh, wiring systems, the network cable systems, all that stuff. That once those you know panels fail, which can happen very quickly and under fire conditions how that dynamic changes and impacts firefighters, especially when they're in the building operating not only on search operations or evacuation operations, but uh, fire suppression tactics as well. Um, that barrier there then once it's gone, you know, again, opens the structure up for a new dynamic of, you know, impacts and even potential failures. And of course, the biggest part of that is the ability to become entrapped very quickly by what I call the giant slinkies from those flexible ductworks that burn away and get you hung up. And, you know, I, I can promise you that we've experienced that in my career, uh, me and, and folks that have been on my crew. And, you know, one of the biggest things is they used to call me Inspector Gadget because I could pull in my pocket and just about pull out anything you needed and you know, wire cutters that night came in real handy to, to actually, you know, free us quickly. Uh, one mistake made was we should have initially called a mayday, and we didn't. And looking back and, and using that experience to, to, to share with others, you know, from a perspective they can learn vicariously is that uh, we, we took a big chance in, in just trying to free ourselves without calling for help because it is a, a delay of getting, you know, that that group of people that are considered your rapid intervention crew, which is your quote unquote lifelines, you know, in there. And I think that's something else just to talk about quickly. I know we're getting closer on time, Chris, but when we're setting up in these buildings, it's it's setting up the way that you should be setting up. And one of the pieces I mentioned rapid, mentioned rapid intervention components, I think we get really good at two in, two out. And we never expand RIT a lot of cases uh, above two people or three people. And when you start getting into these bigger structures, we, we have a history of knowing because of research that was done after the Brett Tarver incident at, at the uh, Southwest supermarket that how many people it truly does take to get somebody out and what's the potential for having maydays. And I mean, they ran drill after drill, after drill, after drill, you know, producing basically the same results. 
in the time period that I've taught rapid intervention and, and got folks, you know, operating, we, we've seen the difficulties that they've had, even in a training scenario of being able to affect rescues and what it takes to, to move firefighters, especially if you got multiple people down. And I, I think that's a concept that we've got to think and, and even going geographically on some of the buildings is if you you're operating from you know the alpha and say the delta or the the alpha and the charlie side having geographic locations of writ that you know have somebody that is a dedicated commander to it as we've expanded the incident and of course nfpa 1710 when you get into that 1720 really addresses more of a a rural setting but 1710 if you happen to have buildings like these in your district is the place to go look at what is the baseline deployment of what is recommended. And the key word there is baseline for what it takes. And I got into the concept of, of talking about uh, multi-story buildings as well. And, you know, we, we briefly spoke of that, but how many people does it take to do that? So if you have a crew of three, you got to have two more crew of three to be able to relieve them. You know, one in rehab, one that's ready to relieve you, and then you're working, uh, quote unquote. And same thing in high rise, you get at least three, if not four, to to be able to do that. And those numbers add up very, very quickly. Uh, and that's where getting resources coming uh, is important in the rural setting, even with these bigger buildings in the rural setting, because the the whole concept or the marketing strategy behind someplace like the dollar generals, the family dollars, and and the dollar trees, those type of things. Is they're trying to put a store on every road that leads towards Walmart. That is a marketing strategy. I didn't realize that until I actually got to talk with with a individual that I'm friends with that is a manager of uh, a, a Dollar General, and he was telling me that's the whole regional concept of what they do and. You know, that's the reason there's so many of those out there. But still, again, it's in your community. You've got a lot of risks. And one I don't think we take into consideration enough is our churches, the size that goes to that. That is a commercial structure. Uh, if you get into the code enforcement building worlds and there's a lot of challenges and dynamics to go with that as well. Well, you know, I think the the issues when you talk about RIT in particular um, you know, you have the potential in these commercial structures, to, again, depending upon the size, with uh, air management issues, entrapment, um, uh, products of combustion and, and uh, disorientation. Um, very, very common relative to just, again, getting into a closed structure where disorientation and or air management um, causes a series of cascading events, causes a mayday, and that need for multiple resources to be able to get from point A exterior to that particular point of where the singular or multiple firefighters are in distress and then go to a safe area of refuge or to get them back out again. So it's going to be a very laborious, time-consuming activity. And again, looking at, excuse me, again, looking at the resources and the capabilities of your personnel, that very well may be a high-stress environment where you may not be capable of it. So that part of uh, the company portion of it, do do you, although you have the numbers, do you have both the physical and mental capabilities to do what's necessary? So that goes back to, again, just the composition of your personnel, how old, how young, how physically fit, 
to be able to operate in these very, very demanding environments. And, and again, uh, uh, if our listeners have not or are not aware of the Brett Tarver story, the Phoenix, Arizona uh, incident, again, I would encourage you to take a look at uh, what still may be available on the Phoenix uh, Fire Department website, which I'm certain I haven't visited that in a while. Uh, certainly take a look at the uh, NIOSH report. That'll give you some good insights. But the Southwest Inn report itself uh, really sent into motion what we are still talking about here today in 2024 regarding numerous aspects of suppression, building integrity, operations, writ deployment, uh, strategy tactics, operations. Again, things that start in a very innocuous manner outside fire that move into the building. And here we have very, very demanding cascading series of events. So I, I would say the most important aspects when we talk about our buildings from a tactical standpoint is going to be the suppression portion of it, uh, followed by uh, the building integrity. Uh, as we are operating in and around the building, as that building is going to be affected by the fire dynamics of that structure while we are trying to get into a suppression and or control mode, be very, very acutely aware of the potential compromise or instability or potential collapse of that structure, especially with perimeter walls and especially with the rooftop uh, uh, structural diaphragms rel relative to the rooftop systems because they are always going to be uh, potentially impacted by the multiple or singular rooftop units that are present, additional signages along with other environmental loads that are gonna come into play and I'm going to come back right around, Doug, and talk about your comment here a moment ago about the uh, ceiling systems. The one thing that is very, very common in our commercial buildings is three considerations. They will either have a uh, some type of a void with some type of a drop ceiling. And that drop ceiling, again, depending upon the vintage, may be something very common when we talk about acoustic uh, suspension ceilings um, or somewhat of an older type of ceiling system. But any type of ceiling system that's separating and creating a void between the compartment and the roof deck. Uh, it may not have any ceilings, which is more common over the last uh, 20 to 30 years where we have exposed construction, which uh, is both an economic as well as, an, as well as an aesthetic consideration. So now I have removed the membrane. And if I do have any type of compartment fire in any location of that structure, that is going to immediately start uh, affecting exposed structural steel, decking, and other suspended uh, fixtures and HVAC systems, systems and so forth. And then the third part is always anticipate, depending upon how old that building may be, multiple concealed spaces. So if I've got one ceiling system in it and that building has been around for a considerable length of time, I'm always going to be anticipating at least two or more uh, concealed spaces. And again, there's been uh, one of the most prominent uh, events that was in a commercial structure, which was in a supermarket, again, another supermarket type setting, but that was the wall bomb supermarket fire from August of 1978 that resulted in six line of duty deaths uh, due to multiple concealed ceilings in that particular uh, structure as it was being renovated while it was still being uh, functionally in use. So uh, again, there's a lot of lessons and learnings. We'll talk a little bit more about some lessons and follow that up on our next episode. But uh, I think, again, for our listeners' uh, perspective is, number one, get out and take a look at your small box all the way up to your big box. Get your pre-fire planning in. Start taking a look at what you may have put in place for your responses. Is that adequate from whenever it was written up? Has it been updated? And uh, I think the other takeaway that goes back to our second episode that we did, Doug, we talked about building instruction. Everything really starts hin hinging around 
the type of construction, the degree of protection that that building may have, and how it's going to react under fire. That leads back into everything else that we talk about regarding risk, command, strategy, tactics, safety, and then ultimately uh, whether we're going to have a history of repeating event. And just just for the listeners, Chris, if if you recall, a few years ago, we actually did a um, program on the wall bombs fire, and uh, we actually had the folks uh, that participated and actually responded to that call early in their careers that uh, talked about it and yeah. shared a lot of insights. So, well, again, good good point. You know, for our listeners, go back into the. Fire Engineering uh, Podcast Archives and uh, do a quick search, either do uh, Wall Bombs Fire, Wall Bombs Anniversary, or uh, put into that search either one of our names in that episode. Uh, I can't think of it off the top of my head, but uh, it was a couple of years ago. The anniversary of that event uh, did occur in August this past year. Um, I think we uh, may have made mention of that at that point, but uh, we did a couple of episodes on that and some some very good learnings and, and lessons, along with our other commercial uh commercial programs on our podcast series. Well, Chris, we've been uh, at it about our time that we normally allow. I think we've covered a lot. Uh, again, uh, for our listeners, if you've not listened to uh, the one through four parts of this six-part series, uh, we encourage you to go back and listen from the beginning all the way through. I think it'll help you get some insights to uh, more of what we're talking about if you haven't listened to those. And uh, we're excited to bring the sixth component to you very shortly uh, and be able to talk about a lot of our lessons learned. And that's, that's where we need to be. We need to focus on every aspect we have. But again, what lessons have we learned? What do we have to take away? And the, the term that you've used tonight, Chris, is history repeating events. That's what we're trying to prevent is history repeating events so that uh, our folks are safe. They have they have everything they need. So wrapping up, any final comments? No, I think we've covered it all again. Uh, get out. Take a look at what's, what's going up in terms of new construction. Start paying attention to those buildings that are sort of uh, uh, blending into the background and uh, see the forest from the trees. Uh, and have respect for your commercial buildings, however small or certainly however large, all the way up to the big box. Spend some time on uh, in your in-service uh, opportunities and on your drill uh, opportunities to get out there with the companies, do some walkthroughs, ask some questions, get some insights, get some pre-fire plans, and prepare for that uh, future alarm. Well, Chris, thank you for being on the show. I look forward to part six on your show. Uh, taking it to the streets and again to the men and women that are listening uh, to the show. We thank you for tuning in. We look forward to having you on part six and we want to make sure that uh, you get the right information. You get good quality training and our whole goal and fire and training is for everyone to go home till next time. Stay safe, train hard. We'll see you on the next edition of fire and training. I'm your host, Douglas Klein signing off. Breathing in diesel exhaust fumes is like walking into a fire without a mask. Over time, those toxins lead to cancer. Protect yourself with MagnaGrip. 
the easiest, most reliable exhaust removal system that features a true 100% seal to eliminate diesel exhaust fumes. To get free grant assistance, visit magnagrip.com.